invite you to join me again in Colossians 2. It's continuing our study this morning in this short and, and very impactful book of the New Testament, this letter from, from Paul to the family in Colossae. For review, as we tend to, um, we began with thanksgiving. Paul gave thanks for the fact that the gospel was working in the Lycus Valley. Epaphras has taken the word of God there, and it's fruitful. He also is very deep in prayer for them. He promises his um, partnership with them before the throne of God. And his prayer request, and I've continued reflecting on this and reflecting on this after we've studied it. And it, it it is a powerful idea that being full of the knowledge of God produces a life that matches Christ. And we'll see that idea come through again, but the knowledge of redemption, knowing Him, knowing Christ, who He is and what He's done, that that moves us, it changes us. In fact, it is the communication of that message whereby He intends to defend and grow His family, this message of Christ. And so He prays for the family, and and the, the final quality of the life that's worthy of Christ is that they give thanks, and he reminds them of the work of the Father on their behalf that produces this thanksgiving. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the realm of darkness and transferred us, as Brother Troy reminded us in prayer this morning, reflecting upon Colossians 1. And then he set his gaze upon Christ. The language elevates the song of Jesus in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Primarily emphasizing at the end his reconciliation. That not only has he made all things, but he is making all things new. And this idea of peace with God, reconciliation. How could we experience that as broken, disobedient people? It is through the cross of Christ. It is through the blood, the broken body of Jesus And that's 21 through 23 of chapter 1. He reflected upon that and its particular application to these uh, believers in Colossae. Paul shifted at the end. He says, and I am a messenger of that gospel. I'm a messenger of this good news. And he went on to describe this responsibility that he's received to proclaim and to preach Christ with great clarity. No confusion here. We need clarity Uh, The communication that reveals the treasure and the knowledge of Jesus. And the response of people to that message, to that preaching and the commitment to prayer, is that we would watch out, that we would beware of these false teachers, and then that we would continue in the tradition of Christ. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2 are another one of the, it's another piece of Colossians that's continued to stick with me throughout the study. And I think that 8 through 10 really does encapsulate Paul's intention in writing this letter. And the ideas that are found in 8 through 10 uh, really inform uh, the, the past few sections we've looked at, including the section this morning. So I want to read that one more time. He said, beware Lest anyone cheat you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men 
and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And there really are three ideas in that verse. Don't follow the false teaching because it is in accord with humanity and not in accord with Christ. Those three ideas are what he reiterates today. He expands. He investigates those, particularly in the state of the church in Colossae. So those from 8, we're going to expand today in verses 16 through 23. But 9 and 10 say, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead body. So full divinity dwells in Christ. And we are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So this is the foundational question of Colossians. Is, is Jesus Christ, his work, his message, the gospel, is that everything that you need for life, godliness, spiritual maturity, the fullest experience of humanity as Christ intended? Is he sufficient for that? In 9 and 10, he argues yes. And then as we looked at last week, we have visible demonstrations of this fullness. There are Christian signs of fullness. And these signs were circumcision and baptism. We talked last week about this internal transformation that's intended. Even throughout the Old Testament, in the sign of circumcision, he says, but circumcise your hearts. And then God promises to circumcise their hearts because we cannot live lives of obedience. We fail time and time again as we live according to our old nature. And so, based upon those signs of circumcision where the old flesh, this desire for sin, all of these old habits, this is positionally removed when Christ died. He circumcises us, spiritually speaking. And then baptism these two images of our association, this is crucial today and, and next Sunday, the, this image of burial and resurrection in association with the head, the corporate Christ, that, he, that we were in him when he died and we were in him when he rose, that has profound implications not only on our lives individually, but on our life together as a family. And so today, this text, verses 16 through 23, this is where all of the nitty-gritty details of the heresy in Colossae is in the letter. Uh, no other place in the book, or in, often even in the New Testament, is the detail um, about the teaching given to us. But it's difficult to us, because while we have explicit information about the false teaching here, it's also somehow still not very clear <laughs> what exactly is going on. It's very clear to the church in Colossae what's going on culturally and, and theologically and uh, in that time. They have very clear communication about what Paul's saying. But what, I mean, all of these odd things, you know, these the food and drink and the festivals and new moons and uh, this worship of angels and visions and don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. What exactly is going on here? There seem to be Jewish elements. There seem to be pagan elements. And this is the danger that Epaphras has observed. And so 
exactly what's happening here is quite difficult to decipher. Neither is it our mission this morning to precisely decipher the details of the false teaching in Colossae. Our intention is to walk away with the principles that Paul is addressing and to move forward in 2,000 years of time to apply the same eternal truths to our life today. In what way are we threatened like Colossae was threatened? So we will look at the details, but um, a lot of them are difficult to precisely decipher. Uh, then you'll notice in verse 20, <clears throat> well here, let me, let me walk through just the, some of the um, organization of the text first. So we really have three sections this morning. 16 and 17 is one. 18 and 19 is our second. And then 20 through 23. These three sections, the way that they function is that the first two, as we'll see, you can see visibly and, and read, that they are parallel in that they start with a negative prohibition. Really the first commands that are coming through, and this is going to be the first of many as Paul moves from the theology of Christ to the particular today, the, the cultural application of these truths. And then in chapters three and four, just this dramatic demonstration of how these truths change our lives, how it is that Paul's prayer request that the knowledge of God would make itself out in a life that's worthy. That's really chapters, well, chapter three and into the beginning of chapter four is what does that life look like, particularly in relationship to each other? How should we live toward each other in the body of Christ based upon his fullness and our union with him and our death to the flesh and our life in his resurrection? How does that affect us? So he begins both of them, you know, let no one judge you and then let no one cheat you. These two prohibitions, and then give some details about the teaching in food, drink, the festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, and then here, delights and false humility, worship of angels, these visions. This is sort of the nature of the teaching. And then he reaches a very important conclusion at the end of both of these, really a negative conclusion about the teaching. The first, it's a shadow of the things to come or the things that were to come. That's what they're preoccupied with, what the teaching is preoccupied with. And secondly, again, remember this, the reiterations of verse 8 coming through here, uh, not holding fast to the head. It's disconnected from Christ. Then in verses 20 through 23, this really is a, it's a summary that links here very importantly, if you died with Christ, so that points us back to the baptism imagery, and next week, chapter 3, verse 1, if you were raised with Christ, so he's beginning to describe the implications of the theology, how it matters, how it changes the way we walk through this world. So he sort of summarizes um, the teaching in verses 20 through 23 and then reaches this conclusion with quite a condemning statement at the end about the false teaching that it is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning, where we've been, where we are, where we're going. Let's seek the Lord's help and then jump into some of the details here of the text. 
Father, it is in the name of Christ that we come to you. This is your word. You have inspired it. You've breathed it out by your spirit through the Apostle Paul. It is impactful to us today. We ask that as we look into this text, this is probably one of the most convoluted or distracting. Like There's so many odd details here. A lot of rabbit trails that we could run down. I ask, Father, that even if I speak poorly, that your word will not, that your spirit will not, that even if I come short in the details of application and knowing exactly how this lands in our lives, fill us with your spirit, lead us continually toward Uh, the knowledge of your truth, illuminate your word. I pray that this morning, as we gather together around the word Jesus Christ, that we would be steadfast in him, immovable, unshakable, grounded in the reality of Christ, Give clarity as we move through this difficult text. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. This first section, verses 16 and 17, uh, has quite a Jewish feel to it. This is where, as we evaluate what is going on exactly in Colossae, uh, what's the nature of this false teaching? Well, many are going to argue, well, it has to have Jewish roots. And that's largely because of verse 16. He says, don't let anyone judge you in food and in drink uh, or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So there's this very Jewish feel to it, Sabbaths and festivals and uh, dietary regulations and things like this. He says, let no one judge you. The first question I had, even just in a cursory reading of this text is, well, how can you stop someone from judging you? He says, you know, stop doing that. Don't make that condemnation. He says, there's no way exactly that we can, the, the intent is not to control what someone else thinks of the Christian faith or even of a Christian who believes that they have everything supplied to them in Jesus. What's going on here is that uh, they these false teachers have this evaluation of the Christian faith. And as they look at individuals who rest in the sufficiency of Jesus and who are free in Him, and they say, you know, but there's really these other categories. There are these other things that you need to be doing or must not do in order to truly reach this elevated spiritual maturity, in order to take the next step to abundance in Christ, here's a list of things for you to do. And so there's this judgment, almost this divine, this elevated judgment. God is not satisfied in the way that you're living the Christian life. You are incomplete. And so they supply these things. He says, don't agree with that judgment. Do not agree that we must have food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. He says, no, no, we don't, 
this is very Romans 14. Uh, this probably should be coming to the back of your mind. This Romans 14 where, you know, everyone uh, is, is esteeming one day above another. Some people celebrate, other people don't celebrate and let everyone be firmly convinced in his own mind. And there's this idea of, well, should we eat this food, this meat, or should we not eat this meat? You know, one would say, well, it's going to be offered to idols, so we should not, we should stay away. And another might say, but we're free in Christ and it's just food, so I will partake. And the temptation is that we would judge one another and criticize the way that another person is walking in Christ. And he says, let no one condemn you in these matters. In fact, an application application of Romans 14 to the Colossian family would be actually exercise freedom. (laughs) Live freely in Christ. Your flesh is handled. It's taken care of. Your sin is gone. So take a breath and enjoy the sufficiency of Christ. No one judge you in these things. So again, of course, it brings to mind uh, the law. It brings to mind um, what was the regulation for God's people that they received on Sinai, a lot of food regulations, a lot of celebrations. These, uh, these here, festival, new moon, Sabbath, um, may, may not, but I think it's probably a, based on time, so you maybe have an annual, um, an annual festival, a monthly with the new moons, uh, and then weekly. So all these different sorts of celebrations that we would have in different times of the year, celebrating different things. And he says, in all of them, what's happened is that what began in Jewish tradition has now been, this is a quote for you, it says, has now been transformed in the crucible of syncretism, which is the grabbing all of these different ideas, transformed in the crucible of syncretism to be subject to the service of the elements of the universe. Remember the element, those elemental things, the, the uh, perhaps even wind, water, uh, f- fire, and uh, ground, all of these things that, that really represent, we'll get into this a little bit later today, but these represent false worship, this idol worship where we perhaps re- uh, reverence the God of this or the spirit of that, and we seek their help, and we make them offerings, and we appease them. He says, no, none of this has anything to do with Christ. It says, do not agree with the condemnation of whether you do or you do not participate in these things. Why is that? Verse 17, because all of these things previously mentioned, verse 16, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So, This helps, we need to go back and now think through just the redemptive plan a little bit. And it was not too many years ago that we walked through the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews we saw some of these ideas, where in the time of promise, in the time of of laws and and, uh, thinking through the Mosaic law and these requirements of full obedience. And as you obey fully, you get full blessings. And as you disobey, there are repercussions for that. He says, and, and we look through them living this out in very faulty ways and they failed and they failed and they failed. And all of that though, all of the temple and the sacrifices and even the purity of the food regulations and all of that, what was it intending to do? 
It was intended to foreshadow. It was intended to point. It was intended to say, grab their face and look. Look this way. Anticipate what is coming. This is a time of promise and anticipation. And then, let's take the temple and the sacrifices as an example. When the sacrifices are being done year after year after year in the temple, it fixes people's gaze on this future atonement that's going to take place. So the question is, when we have Christ arrive, and when He walks to the cross, and when He dies and substitutes Himself fully and finally, Hebrews says, once for all, then what happens to that? What happens to the old stuff? To the shadow? I think this is actually quite a very natural picture of a shadow. If you have a shadow, that means something is casting the shadow. And the shadow is a great place to maybe learn some basic things about the source. You might learn its basic shape. You might learn, like, if we have the shadow of a hand, you say, I know there's, you know, five things coming off of it, and it can move, and and all these varieties of ways. But then, if I were to show you a hand, then you say, oh, well, that makes sense. I don't need the shadow anymore. Because I have fullness. And that's the argument that he's making. That a lot of these, even originally Jewish ideas from the law, some of these regulations, he says those were intended to point you toward the fulfillment, the substance, the body, the actual. And that is Christ. So there's a contrast here between the inadequacy of the human tradition and the finality and the sufficiency of Christ. So we would be making a grave mistake. We would adopt the mistake of the false teachers if we were to love the picture, if we were to love the shadow more than we loved the source, more than we loved the substance. Certainly, it would be folly, and that's what Paul's arguing, that we would demand that verse 6 or verse 16 is the way to growth, that keeping regulations is the way toward growth. Okay, so there's the first one, 16 and 17. Moving on in 18 through 19, let's just read through that. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. We'll pause there. Not holding fast to the head, continue with that metaphor. Okay, so let no one cheat you of your reward. What does that mean? (laughs) It could mean one of two primary ideas. And And I think the idea is that There is someone, once again, these people who stand in critique of the Christian faith. They've perhaps even lived amongst it, but participated in it. They know it well, and as they evaluate, they say, you know, Christ, in all the beauty and splendor, all the things He accomplished, I think if you stayed only with Him and you didn't didn't keep this law, you didn't abstain from that, 
you didn't participate in what he's about to talk about, some of these, um, the, even these pagan ideas. He's like, these really do supply, they build us. If you don't do that, I think you're disqualified from full growth. You're not going to achieve it. And this taking, so how do they accomplish that? They say, no, you're not going to experience what we experience. We are higher plane. We are next level Christianity. And it is wonderful. It's beautiful up here. We have fullness. And he says, no, no, no. Remember, what, is, what have you inherited? You've inherited the treasure You've inherited the mystery revealed. You've inherited Christ himself. And so he says, if you, um, we were at the memorial service for Gary Taylor's parents yesterday, and there was something that was said that was quite impactful, I thought. He said, um, one of the previous pastors were interacting, and they said something to the effect, okay, so what then could we add to this? Now that we've heard, we reviewed the gospel, what then could we add to this? And he said, oh, there is something we could add. Don't remember the exact word, but essentially confusion, distortion. That's what we could add. And here it is. It's distortion in syncretizing old Jewish ideas. And here in verses 18 and 20, 18 and 19, it's distortion with some of these other pagan ideas. You can see here that there's a little bit different flavor. This uh, worship of angels and then intruding to the things he hasn't seen, vainly pushed up, uh, puffed up by his fleshly mind. So what exactly is happening here? Well, first, taking delight, um, it, that, that's absolutely an interpretation, and it could be that they just love these things. Um, but the word uh, comes from Othello, and that is they, they will. Uh, I, I, I believe the, the intention is that they push you towards this, and that would be the way that they take from you your reward, is if you listen and, and you go and you agree with the judgments and, and you aren't bewaring, and there you go, off with this promise of greater spiritual life. So they will you toward two things, humility and worship of angels. This is odd. This doesn't seem like it would be, uh, it seems like it would be very easy to see this coming a mile away. Like what are these people doing exactly? Well, it could be that their interaction with angels is simply that. So angels, you know, we have these created rulers. Maybe he's talking about the dark side of the angelic realm, which is a very common theme in Colossians, the powers. So maybe it is in their adoption of some pagan practices that they are practicing idolatry in that they worship ideas that have come from deceptive, powerful beings, something like that. It could also be that they are reverencing Christ so much. God is so holy. He is so high. He is so far above me that I need an intermediary. I need an angel to take me to his presence. And I will be raptured into heavenly visions and see who Christ is and uh, you know, walk the heavenly ways, and this is going to be fantastic and wonderful, and so perhaps that's part of what's happening, intruding into these things which he hasn't seen, that, that they love 
visions. They love personal interactions with dramatic scenes. And it is angels that they believe move them there, take them there. Very dramatic. A couple different options on the table for what exactly this means. Uh, And they have this faux humility about them. Perhaps it is that they are just like, you know, we, again, God is so high and we are so low, but it is in this rite, it is in this ritual that we have seen things beyond. We have seen things above and it's wonderful. Something like that. That perspective really any, any, however that manifested itself in the first century, it created these people that presented themselves humbly, but in reality were extraordinarily arrogant. They were puffed up by their fleshly mind. They were conceited without reason. They had this inflated view of how they were going to move towards spiritual maturity. And what this does is it points to the baseless assertions that are being made by these teachers who have the superior experience where all that they're actually experiencing is an illusion. It's a vision. Maybe they saw it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they think they're with heavenly angels. Maybe they're venerating, you know, some of the um, other religions, the, the, the gods of other religions around them. But whatever it is has produced this supreme arrogance. And Paul's accusing them of claiming really to transcend through this visionary experiencing. By, and what, what's resulted is that they've end up becoming completely preoccupied with something very low, something very base, something very beneath. And here, the, the reference of a fleshly mind should be sort of pinging us from things we have said and things we're going to say that, that okay, this is related to the circumcision, the flesh, They haven't been circumcised by Christ. They still have a fleshly mind and are moved by it. And it's anticipating, it's foreshadowing the end of this text, verse 23, that these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So yes, they're they're just going into great details about these things. Perhaps some technical cultic rites Uh, perhaps something more general and seeking to go just in an emotive experience toward the presence of God to see things that others have not seen. Certainly, though, to say, you know, Christ is, is phenomenal, but it's not enough. I want something else. Show me a sign. Show me a sign. Give me something personally, specially. And the result of all of this is that their habit and their practice and their pattern is that they are disconnected from Christ. They have moved away from the head. It is this condemning and critical deficiency in their thought process and in their approach toward growth. The head metaphor takes us back to the song, the Christological song, that Christ is the head of the body, his body, the church. 
So there he is. He is our, our source of life. He is our authority. Without him, we are inanimate. We have nothing. We have no direction. We have no life. Um, and they are saying, we have great direction and life disconnected from the head. How could that be? Everything we have and know and believe comes from Christ. And so they, even, perhaps even unintentionally, are making this move. Distance from the sufficiency of the final authority of our leader, our king, our maker, Jesus. Likely, because of Epaphras' move to get help from Paul, because it's a letter to the church, because even here he says they're moving away from the head, they're, they're not holding fast to the head. This is arising from within the family. This is arising from people from within, people who claim that they are connected to Christ. And the reality is that they are not. One of the things I find very encouraging in this verse, as we go through just this description of, what, of how Christ accomplishes this, you know, he says, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Fascinatingly here, and I believe it's an important point in all the New Testament, how do we grow? How, this is a fu- fundamental question to our faith. How do I grow? How do I take the next step? There's a few really important principles right here. One of them is that the agent of your growth is God himself. He grows you. Now, he has means by which he grows us, and we speak of those often, word, prayer, fellowship. But he grows you. You cannot sanctify you even as a justified individual. And so we rejoice and we rest in his pace and his process of growing us, of changing us. That can be a very joyful thing and at times a very frustrating thing, a very, like, it's not happening fast enough or in the way that I would like it to happen. But he is the one that grows us. And then in the text, how does he think of the way that God grows us? Is it individually or is it corporately? From whom the whole body, there's one of the favorite words and themes of Colossians, fullness, everything, all of it, all together. We grow together as the metaphor body. And so there's a very corporate emphasis in this text Now, does it have individual implications? Well, if it didn't, then the body wouldn't be growing. Of course, it has individual implications. And he's going to go on in chapter three and even talk about our individual interactions with each other. Certainly, you are grown individually. But in relationship to what? In relationship to our family, in relationship to the members of this body of Christ, often that we even sit next to on a Sunday morning, We are a visible local demonstration of that universal body, right? And so here we are together, growing up together into the maturity of Christ. It pushes against one of what I believe is our cultural tendencies, cultural formations, to think so strongly 
on this radical individualism. My faith, my walk with Jesus, my time, my sin, my... And he has this very corporate emphasis that we are together in this journey. So he is our source and he is our author- his source of growth and our final authority and the false teachers are disconnected from that. There is a tremendous uh, church impact and ecclesiological impact on us that we'll, that we'll get through in chapter 3 of some of these things. Okay, um, verses 20 through 23. Therefore, some conclusions. Reflecting back upon baptism, when you went under the water, when the, which is not that when it happened, but as a reflection of when the Spirit of God baptized you into the body of Christ, if you died with Him, away from the basic principles of the world, then His question is, why? Why, as though you still live in the world, do you subject yourself to these ideas? to these regulations. And so he begins again to tie it back to the idea of power, of authority, that that old life we lived and even the life that now the false teachers are dabbling back in again, dabbling with these uh, worship of angels and some of the elevation, over-elevation, misunderstanding of the intention of the laws. And they bring this power and this authority over an individual. And it looks a lot like the past. It looks a lot like our old life and the old man. And he says, does theology matter at all? If it's true that when Christ died, my flesh was removed and my guilt and my sin are gone, if that's true, then it matters. It means something today. Why would I go back? Why would I go seek to be fully obedient in a way to satisfy God? I can't do that. Why would I go submit to do's, do nots, do, do not? And and here's another idea of how you can grow. And here's another idea of how you can grow. It's meaningless. And it died. Our authority, like my my relationship to that authority structure has bled out. So why go try to resuscitate it? Does not make sense that we would seek to do that. Remember that basic principles, uh, he refers back to chapter 2, verse 8, again, identifying that their source comes from an ungodly source and really is idolatry at its heart. So the absurdity of following that which Christ has already conquered, right? We rejoiced last week. He put to shame these powers. He marched them through the streets. He ridiculed them. He's marching them to their death. Look what he did on the cross. And here we go back to them. Here's a quote for you. It says, Since death with Christ brought emancipation from bondage to the elemental spirits, submission to the codified taboos that they promote amounts to a surrender of that liberty and a denial of the headship of Christ. 
Secondly, it is incongruous for the citizens of another heavenly world to submit to petty regulations concerning perishable items in this world in order to conform to merely human precepts and tenets. Quite simply, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And so Paul, he calls these out in verse 21. He calls these principles out, you know, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Rules, beware, watch out for that dangerous thing. All of these things are things, he says, which perish with the using. And that was in that second quotation, to submit to, to petty regulations concerning perishable items. You know, food, whether you eat it or you don't, it's going to decompose very soon. A day, whether you celebrate it or you don't, it passes on the calendar and is gone. Why spend everything focusing on things that just cease to be? When instead, we could lay up heavenly treasure. We could focus on this inheritance of hope. We could focus on actual, real, incorruptible future realities that are, according to Colossians, also present. Like, why not live there? Why not live in that, in that freedom and that joy? So, all these regulations, don't touch, don't taste, uh, don't handle. They are perishable things, and they are, once again, here's source according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. Uh, that idea, is, that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29. I'll just read to you verses 13 and 14 from Isaiah 29. It says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips... They have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. So what happens when the fear of the Lord is not sourced in the word of the Lord himself, when we seek to over-apply and we misanalyze and we over-elevate all of these ideas, well, we have the fear of God taught by humanity rather than taught by divinity. And so God makes them to be fools. Paul's point is, that the false teachers have been making far too big of a deal of matters that don't really get to the essence of true Christian spirituality, which is the change, the transformation of heart, the circumcision of heart. Jesus similarly rebuked the Pharisees for this, that they took the law and they pumped it full of their own ideas and thus preached the commandments of men. pretty strong condemnation in verse 23. All of these things, they look like they work. They have an appearance of wisdom. They're very 
quote-unquote moral or at least moral-looking people, external, these whitewashed shells of people who walk through life. And it's deceptive because you, from the outside, you're like, wow, that looks like it is working. And everything they say is that it does. Everything they say supports exactly what they do. They have this religion that they have created and they have this uh, humility and they look very lowly and they look like, no, I, I, don't, you know, I don't partake in those very fleshly appetites. I, I, I submit myself constantly and I have these very close interactions with the, with the divine and I have even these visions of Christ and I know exactly what to do and how to move forward and now which days to celebrate and which food to participate in and just all of this stuff. And it's wonderful. My own sort of conglomeration of, of these ideas and, and, and it works really well for me. And Paul's scathing accusation in his summary is he says, that doesn't work. The insides of that individual are every bit as fleshly and old and allegiant to the powers as they ever were. So don't let a pretty case fool you. He says, and an in, he's sort of saying, which would be better? Which would you rather have, Christian? Would you rather have the knowledge that all your sin is gone, that there is no bondage, even if you feel it, would you rather have that and walk in the freedom that seems to contradict every moment your experience? Or would you rather be an actor in a play and pretend like everything's better and everything's fixed and you figured it out and there is no question and there is no confusion about the way forward and if everyone would just do what you're doing, then there is just the fullness of everything and be a liar, which would you rather have? The most precious truth that offers freedom, even if you battle, or a lie that comforts and ultimately condemns? Who is this today? This is, I think, the greatest question in the text for us. And I have some thoughts. I'll share them. But it's also not fully settled. Like, who is it? It's, this is, it's two categories at least, I think, that we could identify based upon 16 and 17 and then 18 and 19. There could be, perhaps this is a Pharisee today. This is a religious individual who loves the law. They love requirements. And many of us even have come from backgrounds that are not dissimilar to this, uh, Christian or otherwise, where the idea is there's this sort of, uh, there's this threatening, uh, power-tripping, Christless religion of rules. And it's very legal. If you do this, then this. It's very karma-oriented. Here, blessing. Here, failure. And even sort of law-oriented, in the, not in the way that law was intending to move us toward Christ. It just stays here and condemns and holds over you these, your faults and your failures. And I don't know if any of you, I know some of you have, I've spoken with some of you, but 
is not to promote it, but I think the recent uh, Amazon documentary um, about the, the Duggars and, and the Gothards, it, it has some of these ideas. There, there are um, organizations, bodies of even people who claim Christ, but what is being promoted is these laws of morality. Here is the pathway. These are the steps, seven steps toward holy living. And behind the veil of all of it, but these strong authority structures do, as, as I say, this outward conformity, meanwhile, inward chaos, destruction, ruining lives. That's the nature of this teaching. Outward conformity, inner chaos. Or, I think another category is from 18 and 19, this, which is pagan. Now, we wouldn't, we're not just drawn to that. We're not like, oh, look, a pagan idea. I want that. No, but, but the idea that the world has some really good ideas about this. You know, and Scripture's kind of quiet about these things. But I listen to this philosopher or I heard from this therapist or I, I did that. It just like, I have a lot of these ideas. And I'm not, I maybe even shouldn't have said that word. Like, I'm not saying that therapy is pagan. That's not what I'm saying. But I just mean this, these ideas that like, I'm going to draw, I'm going to draw, I'm going to draw because the, I, I, the Bible seems insufficient here. That sort of feel of a movement is very dangerous because it reveals in us a seed of this belief in the insufficiency of what God has said and what he has accomplished. This is one of the reasons that we counsel. It's one of the reasons we open this book because it is supremely relevant to every aspect of our lives. So these cultural voices and books and videos. We spoke of this a few weeks ago, this higher plane, you know, mental perspectives, keys to unlock these secrets and mysteries previously untold and new knowledge. Just all of that has with it this taint of like, but you're it's just adding. It's not substantive. Christ is substantive. So perhaps those two broad categories wherein we could find a great deal of application. Ironically, and I don't just mean to fire shots across the bow, but, and this is not from within our faith by any means, but, there, but, but our dear neighbors have both of these blended into their faith. It is an external presentation with internal chaos that has very mystical elements to it. That, uh, it. that is precisely what the LDS faith is. It, it was originated by jo Joseph Smith interacting with these powers. And he says, the church is insufficient. Christ is insufficient. Let me present to you a fuller, better, truer Christ. And this is how we get to him. Here is our do's and do nots. And here's the mystical experience you may have that confirms. It's, it's all over in here, these ideas and the danger. And it's one of the reasons that we would speak with clarity about the true and the living Christ to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors. 
finally, I want to address one last thing, and that is just to flip this whole thing a little bit on its head. Because you may be thinking, as I even thought throughout this, okay, so what about Christian rules? Like, what about things we are intended to do? How does that, like, how does that play itself out in this conversation, in this text? Because, you know, we have this heavy criticism in the, in the New Testament about the Pharisees and how they ignored the commands of God, and they're holding fast to human traditions. Jesus accuses them of that. And then in Galatians, you have Paul's strong theology. You know, if you rely on works of the law, then you're a curse. And you have here, just like this is nothing. It does nothing to the indulgence of the flesh. It accomplishes nothing here. Um, and yet you have other times where he says, and these people, they feared the Lord and they observed all that God had commanded them. And, and you have the, that the law is good. It teaches us of Christ. Or you have Colossians text to follow where Paul's about to go on this like riddling of commands and instructions toward how we should live. They're like, so how do we really reconcile those two ideas? And just a few thoughts to take with you. The question is why, that, why if we do have a body of um, morality to follow as the fruit of faith, and we do avoid certain things, and we do pursue other things, then why are we so critical of other people who look like they're doing the same thing for these reasons? Just four thoughts that making and following rules reveals our hearts, not changes our hearts. So when someone relies upon a set of rules to change their heart, it's ineffective. The focus on the external fails to deal with the internal. And so we will not move forward as a family of faith primarily revolving around external do's and do nots. What's going on in our hearts is primary and other things secondary. Secondly, many sets of rules are these overextended applications or twisted manifestations of God's rules. This is the Pharisees, um, that what they were following wasn't actually what God had called for people to do. And that happens very often in rules too. Once that occurs, then what they're following ceases even to be God's guidelines and is now human wisdom, which is why it's so heavily criticized by Paul. Third, any set of rules that takes on salvation significance is idolatrous and condemned. Rules must not, these, this, again, the fruit of faith, how we walk how we live must never diminish the grace of God through Christ. Finally, instead of attacking the general rules and regulations that aim at promoting godly living, so he's not, Paul's not after that which is just good and godly, Paul is targeting those traditions that steal Christ's glory from him that rip away the treasure from the inheritors of the treasure. And so before us really are two metaphors. Which body ought we to participate in? The body of Christ, his corporation, that he promises to not only join together horizontally, but mature upward toward him. This nourished body, 
Or will we embrace this neglected body of the false teachers? And I love that Paul is maintaining a very stubborn Christocentrism. All the things we've said today and all the things written in chapter 2, aside from the details, like these principles have already been here. This is is a familiar sermon. It's like you've already heard it before, even in Colossians, because Paul is absolutely convinced that he must emphasize the freedom that is associated with the death and resurrection of Christ that we will walk forward in. So what Christ has done is the complete cosmic act of new creation. Rest in that. Be recreated by Christ alone.